From 230 Euclid Avenue, I'm Mariah Humiston, and this is the Daily Orange Podcast. Today, from the passenger seat, an SU singer and songwriter's inspiration for her new album. A Syracuse homeless shelter providing stability for students. And how SU's leadership positions in research funding is being dominated by the STEM field. It's Tuesday, March 10th, 2020. Sarah just one one morning randomly, 5 a.m., just woke up and for weeks she'd kind of been trying to piece together the lyrics to I'll Remember You. You know, in the early morning hours, it all just kind of came to her and, you know, she told me that she has this kind of creepy voice memo on her phone of her just whispering the lyrics that came to her in her, like, Haven Hall dorm room. I am Chris Cicello. Who is Sarah Gross? So Sarah Gross is a sound recording, music technology major, and singer-songwriter for her band, unofficially named Sarah Gross and Friends. So the single that she was writing is part of her upcoming album. What is that about? Yeah, so the album is called Songs from the Passenger Seat, and she kind of realized towards the end of it all that all the songs that she had compiled had been written before she got her driver's license. And Gross was telling me that she has a history of kind of not being the greatest of drivers and she kind of thought of this album almost as a like personal tribute to anyone who's ever driven her anywhere for any like musical endeavors. And so earlier we, you uh, explained how she came up with the meaning for her song I Remember You. Mm-hmm. How was that song personal to her? So Sarah kind of talked to me yeah, about the single and, you know, she worked very closely with her friend Jillian Palconan on it. And it's basically about the freshman year cycle of kind of gaining and losing friends. And she later told me that it's kind of her thank you next, kind of referencing the Ariana Grande track. They have a tour coming up for spring break. Can you tell me about that a little bit? She ju- actually just announced the tour today to all of her followers on Instagram. So she'll be going to Drexel University, Philadelphia, Long Island, New York, and then New Paltz, New York, among other places over the course of spring break. And so she isn't doing all of this by herself. What's the story behind her band and her manager? Gross has a very large, extensive band. Living in Long Island, she has her own like recording studio band that people will hear on the album. And in addition, there's six m- members of her band at Syracuse. And, you know, th- they're very collaborative. They are working, you know, hours every week, both rehearsing and just, you know, performing for their upcoming tour and shows at the Westcott and Funkin' Waffles. And then, yeah, you know, she recently kind of picked up a manager in Andy Torres Lopez, and he kind of entered Gross's circle and has really kind of merged the roles of like publicist, marketer, agent, 
And yeah, I mean, you know, he kind of talked about for him, it's really being a fan that can advocate on her behalf and help her basically get to the apex of her uh, talent and skill. I want to go back to how she got some of her band members, specifically drummer Ian Yates. He had a pretty interesting experience with Gross recruiting him. Can you explain kind of that story that he told you about it? Talking to Ian Yates, who's the drummer, he told me that, you know, during a tech rehearsal for FYP first year players, their production of Newsies, he was in the pit playing with the band and Gross was actually in the production. And she just kind of leans down into the band pit and goes, hey, you're a good drummer. Do you want to join my band? And kind of with that, you know, he got brought into this family, if you will. And who else is traveling in this band? So it'll be bassist Mitch Taylor, drummer Ian Yates, uh, Jillian Pelconnen, and then Sarah Gross. So kind of a smaller microcosm of the band. What is one of the most difficult aspects for Sarah? Yeah, so she kind of went into a lot of different aspects of, you know, the difficulties that she's encountered. But she kind of she kind of told me that, you know, in the creative field, definitely one of the most difficult aspects is just convincing people to take her and her band seriously and just kind of prevent her like them from being taken advantage of in any capacity. And this is a lot for anyone, let alone on top of schoolwork and especially during midterms right now. So what's her philosophy to balance all of this? You know, her philosophy is just kind of simple. You know, she's just happy to get a lot of people together and perform just at any chance that she can get. You know, she just kind of said, you know, I'm in college and, uh, you know, when are you going to get the chance to just get together with your friends and perform and have fun? Chris Cicchello is an assistant feature editor for The Daily Orange. You can read his article, SU singer-songwriter plans new album, Spring Break Tour with Band, on The Daily Orange website. Chris, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. So Booth House looks almost just like any like house that you would see on the street. If you were passing by, you probably wouldn't notice that it was a homeless shelter. And when you go inside, it's very homey. There's a TV, there's PlayStation, there's like a library, and there's a lot of artwork that I noticed that was like kind of scattered throughout the house. There was one in the lounge that they had that had all these like inspirational quotes on it, like courage and love and power. And then there was one that had all like superheroes on it and comic books. And I asked her like, where'd you get this artwork? And they said it was children's handmade art that they had done a few years ago. And we save it every year and pull it out, which I thought was really neat. I am Sarah Allison Drini. And you talked to someone in your article named Kiana Williams. Can you explain to me who she is and kind of what she talked to you about? So Kiana Williams is a residential manager for Booth House. So I went and visited the Booth House and I sat down with her there and she told me everything that Booth House does for the homeless youth and basically how they operate. You know, how long do children stay there? How many children do they typically have per night? And just the relationship that the staff there form with the children. Because it is temporary, children usually stay for about two weeks. It's hard for them to really work with a kid and really have an impact in that limited amount of time. But she said we just try to do our best to help children find peace in the situation that they are now and find some stability. And hopefully that will help them to 
focus on their education, focus on what they need to do to make their future better. And then one of the things that I asked Kiana after we finished our interview, I said, can you give me a tour? Can you show me around the house? And she showed me just the kitchen and she showed me the playrooms and all the rooms where the kids stay and showed me the pantry where they keep all the snacks and where they, she said, you know, kids don't always have this stuff at home. They love this stuff. It was like popsicles and things. And then she showed me the closet where they store donations because she said sometimes kids come with nothing. Sometimes they pack things from where they used to live or they, their parents give them things, but that isn't always the case. So can you explain to me the population of homeless children within Syracuse? The population within homeless children in Syracuse is a lot more than people realize, especially because one of the things that I learned through my interviews is that Homeless youth isn't necessarily what you think of when you think of homelessness. You know, it's not necessarily just a child living out on the streets. Homelessness for children, as described by the McKinney-Vento Act, is any child living in unstable housing. So a child who is couch hopping, more that's most common, or a child who is living with a family member, an aunt, an uncle, or a friend, and they don't necessarily know where they're going to be tomorrow. They don't know where they're going to be next month. So that is what homelessness is. When I spoke with Deb Montroy, she said, you know, they have a percentage or a record of enrolled children who they define as homeless, but they believe they're underreporting because parents don't always understand what is that definition of homelessness under the McKinney-Vento Act. They might not think of themselves as homeless, or they might just be too afraid or ashamed to come forward and say, hey, we are living in unstable housing. We don't have a permanent address. So the population of homelessness is a lot greater than people realize. And so how does the Syracuse City School District handle this problem of homelessness? So the Syracuse City School District has social workers who work in the school with homeless children. They are required under the McKinney-Vento Act because the McKinney-Vento Act is, you know, it says every homeless child must be enrolled in school and every barrier preventing a child from receiving an education must be taken away. So they provide them with donations such as like winter clothes and hygiene products and also school supplies that they might need. And they provide free transportation. They provide them free lunch. Deb Montroy, she said she has to have like private conversations with parents to find out, are you considered homeless under the act? And what can we do to help you? What resources can we provide you with? And so in your article, you say that the Booth House program is voluntary. What does that mean? That means that a child can leave Booth House whenever they wish. So a child could just leave in the middle of the night or a child could just say, hey, I'm going to go stay with a friend and leave. And there's nothing keeping them. They would just alert the parents or the guardian, whoever dropped them off, that they left. And so how does the Booth House try to provide for the kids that go there? So the Booth House collects donations from a lot of organizations such as Rise Above Poverty, which I interviewed Troy Gray. He's the program director there. Or even just individuals. They have clothes. They have hygiene products. When I spoke with Kiana, she said Booth House just tries to provide children with things that they just might not have at home for the short amount of time that they are there. Right. And so you mentioned Troy Gray. Can you kind of give me more detail about who he is and what did he have to say about homelessness in the Syracuse area. So Troy Gray is the program director from Rise Above Poverty. That is a local organization in Syracuse that doesn't work directly with homeless youth, but just works to collect donations and collect resources and things that homeless children might need. So winter clothing, hygiene products, supplies, and they donate those to the Syracuse City School District and they give them to also Booth House. 
So Troy Gray, he told me that homelessness in the city of Syracuse is a rising issue and it's an issue that people don't always realize. He said he often asks people, you know, what do you think of when you think of homelessness? And they think of an old man living on the streets or in a shelter. They don't necessarily think of a child who is just living in unstable housing. And he said education for a child is extremely important to help them rise above the situation they're currently in. And so I want to bring up the quote you used to end your article that Kiana says, and it's, you just got to be loving and kids will love you back. And, you know, that's a really powerful quote that goes along with this whole article talking about the Booth House and what they do for Syracuse kids. What does she want people in the Syracuse area to recognize about this? Kiana just wants people in the city of Syracuse to realize that kids can be homeless because she said, I don't think people in the city of Syracuse realize that children can be homeless. You think of homeless people, you don't think of children, you don't think of babies, you think of adults. So she said, if people realize that, hey, there are kids out there that are in stable housing, that aren't receiving an education, that if people recognize that, maybe they would care a little more, maybe they would want to change that. And that's what everyone that I met at the Booth House, they were so dedicated to that idea that you know, we want to help these children. And if we just work with them and show them love and show them kindness, then maybe they can find some positive light. They can find some hope and that'll help them focus on their education, not the situation that they're in, because the situation they're in is temporary and they can rise above it and hopefully move on. Sarah Allison-Drini is an assistant copy editor for The Daily Orange. You can read her article, Child Homeless Shelters Aim to Provide Stability to Education, on the Daily Orange website. Sarah, thank you so much for your time. Of course, thank you for having me. Professor Claver is an English professor in the College of Arts and Sciences, and she decided since it was an open forum that she was just going to ask about something that's been bugging her for her 21 years, and that's the fact that there's almost no representation of people from the humanities and upper-level research positions at the university. So she asked the question, Kent responded, I'm Michael Sessa. How did he respond? He was brief, but he said that he thinks a lot of it's not a Syracuse problem. It's a problem that exists across almost every major university campus. It's because most of research funding comes from STEM backgrounds and fields, so like different departments within the government or other like independent organizations mostly looking to do research in STEM. Why is this such a big concern? I talked to a few professors for this story, and obviously, being from the humanities, what they had told me is that there's an element of the research they do that doesn't quite get appreciated by people in STEM. Everyone I talk to who's like a dean or researcher in science or mathematics, they have no resentment or anything for the humanities, and they value the humanities. But there's something to be said for practical professional training. Claver said she's not a scientist, and she's humble enough to recognize that she wouldn't be able to appreciate scientific research in the same way someone who's trained to do that research would. And so the same thing's true on the flip side. Can you explain how the departments receive research funding and, along with that, the discrepancies in that funding between specifically humanities and STEM? Research funding comes from a lot of places, and I guess it varies depending on school and the department, exactly how that funding is controlled and what sort of influence the faculty or deans have over that. For example, I talked to Cole Smith, who's the dean of the College of Engineering and Computer Science, and he said, for example, that most of their research is faculty-driven, so the faculty do most of the grant writing or anything like that to try to solicit awards, and then at their level, at the dean's office, they support that research. 
But then there is an issue of being able to actually receive the money. So one of the things we looked at was the Office of Research's data. They publish reports every year, and you could see how much funding awards each department raised. And in the arts and sciences, there were like seven or so departments, programs that just received no research funding awards, as opposed to much smaller numbers from like engineering, computer science, or the iSchool or something like that. So it definitely is a noticeable problem, but it's up in the air exactly whose problem it is to solve. How does Syracuse compare to the national funding discrepancies? It definitely is a trend across American colleges. And people had a lot of different ideas about why that is. It could go back years where America has re-emphasized science and math education in like public schools and that carrying up through the college level. There's also like a practical need. The government, for example, has a much greater interest in studying medicine or engineering than it does in studying history or something like that. Not to say that the value isn't there, but it's just where the priorities are. And it would be hard to say that the problem is like worse at Syracuse or at another university, but Syracuse has its own unique circumstances that set it apart. It spends a lot of money on research, but significantly less per student than its comparable institutions. So like the Department of Education puts together numbers and like most colleges of our level spend $9,000 per student towards research and Syracuse spends like significantly less than that. So we weren't able to get John Liu or any other people in high research positions to comment on that, but it definitely is a noticeable trend. Outside of her concerns with funding, Professor Claver had a second concern. Can you tell me about what that was? She made the point that she's in the College of Arts and Sciences, which granted is a wide-ranging school. There's humanities as well as science departments and programs within it. But almost all of the deans of that school have been from science or technology backgrounds. So their current dean is a chemist. And her point was really that deans do have a lot of influence over the decisions that get made. And it could vary like with research funding, but it's pretty definite in terms of like hiring decisions, especially. So if you're going to hire somebody, if you're not going to renew contracts, the dean's office has substantial input in that. And so there being such a discrepancy between humanities and STEM deans is an issue. How have people within the administration tried to deal with this issue? Ken Savrud addressed it early on in his tenure at Syracuse. And the way he framed it was that SU's professional colleges, so schools like Newhouse or Whitman, got significantly, he called it preferential treatment to a school like the College of Arts and Sciences. And he's kind of been quiet on that since he made those comments in 2014. So it's hard to track exactly what might have been accomplished in that space. But I think what the people who are pushing for higher humanities representation are really talking about like hiring decisions. Because like Claver, for example, said she respected Kent's answer at the forum and she has a good working relationship with him. But she thinks that he knows that answer isn't good enough. Just because that's where the funding is coming from doesn't mean you have to install deans from STEM backgrounds in almost all of the schools and all of the research positions. That is a matter of personal decision to elevate some humanities researchers. How do they solve these problems? It definitely is not easy to solve, but hiring, for example, is one thing that they could do that's like a concrete step. It could be framed that it's very like out of their control, that this is just where the money falls. But 
I think there's a real argument to be made that if they would take more consideration of the discrepancy and install some humanities experts in higher research positions, that that likely would have an effect on access to research resources and just the knowledge base that those people have that STEM people might not. Michael Sessa is an assistant news editor for The Daily Orange. You can read his article, STEM Dominates SU Leadership and Research, Professors Say, on The Daily Orange website. Michael, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. A thank you to our reporters, Chris, Sarah, and Michael. Thanks to Sarah Gross for the sound. Our executive producer is Elizabeth Kama, and our producers are Luca Sirio, Kelvin Dudley, and JJ Tanaka. And as always, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and go ahead and tell your friends to do the same. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next Tuesday.